At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Today on Death by Misadventure, we have a special guest, Kelly Snyder, a former DEA agent with over 20 years of experience in law enforcement. In 2002, Kelly founded Find Me, a nonprofit organization dedicated to assisting law enforcement and families in locating missing loved ones, unsolved murders, and identifying victims of human trafficking. His team works tirelessly on three to four cases each month focusing on one case at a time. The Find Me Group is an elite team of talented psychics, retired law enforcement officers, and professional search and rescue volunteers from around the world, all united by a shared passion to solve cold cases and help find justice for the victims and their families. Join me as we delve into the work of Kelly Snyder and the Find Me Group and explore the haunting mysteries of missing persons, unsolved murders, and human trafficking cases he has worked on. I'm JC Nova, and this is Death by Misadventure. How did the Find Me group get started in 2002, and who are some of the core members of your group? I joined the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children a little bit after I moved to Arizona in 2000. Basically went through their academy and was uh, waiting to go on investigations. And during a period of one year, they literally sent me on three investigations and I was trying to get them to be a little bit more proactive. I met with quite a few of the supervisors when I was back in Washington, D.C. at the academy. And they didn't seem interested. They said, you know, we wait for police departments to contact us and then we follow through. And I said, well, if a child goes missing, all you need to do is call them and tell them that you're sending support into their facility. And I said, I guarantee you, they're not going to turn anyone away. Well, I went into my dark side and said some things I probably shouldn't have said because of their lack of being proactive. And 
So I just decided, you know, screw it. I spent almost a year and a half talking to police departments all over the state. So I just figured I'll go and do it on my own and just create a group on my own. And that's essentially how the the whole group started. I, a lot of the guys that I was working with, with the National Center decided to come over to my organization. So that's essentially how the group started. We got active, real active in 2002, but the group was actually started to put it together in 2001. And then it was literally initially all retired law enforcement. And that's pretty much how we handled everything and started getting requests from police departments all over the state. And we started working on cases with them. So how many core members are part of Find Me Group? How many people actually work with your organization? Currently, I have 130. Wow, that's amazing. How many active cases are you actually working on at one time? Well, at one time, we only work one case at a time, and then we only work with police departments. So regardless of where we get the request, whether it's a police department or prosecutor, depending on what type of case, we only work missing persons, which involves uh, human trafficking victims also, and then homicides. We started finding people that were murdered, so police would ask us you know, to delve into a little bit more on the murder cases, but that's the only three types of cases we work, and we only work one at a time, and usually that translates to about three cases a month. And then we send the information to the police and then just move on to the next case. So walk me through how setting up a case works when someone sends in a request, how you assign people to the to the case, and if you can just kind of walk me through the process so the listeners can have a better understanding of how, how it all works. When the case comes in, basically, if it's a child and it's a fairly fresh case or new case, then those are handed out immediately, regardless of how many cases I'm sitting on, uh, just for the simple fact that we'd like to try and find the child alive and get them, you know, back to their loved ones. But I ask for a photograph and then the form that they fill out on the website requires them to provide me details as to why the person is missing or what the circumstances were with regards if it's a homicide. And then I ask for a photograph and then certain members in the group require or want the date of birth, place of birth, and the time of birth. Those are what we have. Some of our investigators are forensic astrologers and they need that information to fit into their profile on how they work on cases. Anyway, I give the members, every member receives the same case with the photograph and that information. And then the last place the person was seen or where it's a murder case where the person was found. And then details as to, you know, where this was, what city, what state. And then I asked them to provide, if it's a missing person, tell me what happened and where is that person right now? And then if it's a murder case, basically what happened and who's responsible for the homicide. So do you ever work on cold cases? Pretty much everything we do is cold cases. Ah, okay. What is the oldest cold case you've ever worked on? And if you can talk about that a little bit. Well, I don't have the name of the case at the top of my head, but we've worked on probably 
at least 20 cases that were older than 25 years old. And as long as the police department will accept our information, we will work on it. But when a case is that old, and I'm sitting on two of them right now that are over 25 years, and basically I contact the police department, I say, you know, the family has requested us to find this loved one. And would they be interested if we send them the information, would they consider still investigating it? And if they respond, yes, then we work it. If I don't receive a response or they don't seem interested, then of course we don't work it and just move on to the next case. So the 130 members that are part of the Find Me group, are they former law enforcement officers, forensic? I believe that if I understood correctly, you work with intuitives and it sounds like forensic astrologers. Can you talk a little bit more about the people that are actually in your group? Yeah, currently we have 11 police officers that one is actually still on the job and he is a lieutenant in a police department in Colorado and he's a linguistics expert. Just for a little bit of explanation, that's someone that can review a statement provided by a witness or a potential suspect or person of interest and based on the information in that interview can determine whether the person is being deceptive or actually lying in the interview. And then the rest are retired law enforcement and from all different backgrounds, homicide detectives and just police officers that are interested in helping in any way that they can. And then the rest of the members are intuitives, forensic astrologers. I have two medical examiners on staff, body language experts, drowning experts, handwriting experts. And then, of course, we have our search and rescue organization that we partnered with literally 20 years ago. We use them when we are actually physically going out on searches. That's pretty much the makeup of the group. And then the remainder is every form or skill you can think of in the intuitive world, which includes the clairvoyant and remote viewers, the forensic astrologers I told you about. There's two of them in the group. And then pretty much every skill that you can think of that a intuitive has, uh, we have at least, you know, 10 or 20 of those. That's fascinating. So how do you find the intuitives that actually work on the case for you? Do they come to you and ask if they can be a part of the group or do you seek them out? No, they find out about the group and contact me through the website. And then we don't turn anyone away. Basically, it's, you know, we're all volunteers and and devoting our time. And that's all that, that I require. We do put them all through a testing system. And then the vetting process is just basically they're working on the cases week in and week out, and that's how they're vetted. And then the best psychics in in the entire world cannot be more than 65% accurate with the methodology that we use. If a psyche is talking to someone on the phone or face-to-face, sometimes they can be 100% accurate because they're feeding off their energy. But as far as what we do, the best psychic ever would be 65% accurate. That's probably the only unfortunate part about the the group. But what I rely on personally is 
if you have 25 or 30 psychics saying the same exact thing, then in my world, that tells me that those 25 or 30 people are probably on the right track. And I don't indicate that in my report to the police. I just give them all the information, let them figure it out that way. I'm not trying to push them in one direction or the other. Can you share any cases that you believe that you've helped solve through this methodology and through your through your team? Well, we've actually, in the 20 years we've been doing this, uh, November the 15th, believe it or not, today is the 20-year date where we started the group. And, oh, uh, happy anniversary. That's amazing. <laughs> didn't even realize that until I'm sitting here looking at the calendar. And yeah, so happy birthday to me, I guess. But anyway. Yeah. We've uh, located 116 people uh, wow. based solely 100% on psychic information. So a good example of this is the very first case that we solved was a guy named Ed Hatfield who left a note at Beyonce's apartment. They actually, they were staying with, with his fiance's daughter and son-in-law. And he was frustrated and was looking for a job and didn't have any offers. So he decided to run off into the wilderness. And the note that he left just said, you know, I forget exactly the words, but essentially, you know, I don't want to be a burden on anyone and I'm leaving and I'll maybe contact you later on in the month once I get settled, when in fact he actually went and committed suicide. So so we got the information from the family to look for him because it had been a fairly long period of time where he didn't contact them. So I gave the information to the psychics and 17 came back saying he was still alive and 25 came back and said that he was deceased and that he committed suicide. And the incredible part is out of that 25, I think it was close to 19 or 20 said that he was located somewhere off I-17 which is one of the roads that leads northbound to Flagstaff. And two people actually said that he was in the vicinity of mile marker 310. So literally a couple of days later, we took our canine partners up there and uh, located him within an hour. Hmm. How long ago was that? Was that a, a case from a long time ago or fairly recent? Yeah, that was probably 14 years ago, maybe 16 years ago. It was just one of our first successful cases. I mean, we had a lot of cases where we had given the information to the police department, but the case had not been solved. And then what happens is we stay on top of it. I have two researchers that monitor all of the cases that we have worked on, and then they research them on the internet. And then I personally maintain contact with the family and the police trying to get them you know, to provide updates. And then we'll either receive information from the family or the police that the person was located. And then based on all of the information that the police or the the family provide to us, then we compare that with our notes as to whether or not we were accurate. And then if we were accurate, then we take that as a successful case because the information we did provide was uh, accurate and had the police or anyone followed our direction as to what we said happened, then we consider that a successful, you know, case. That's fascinating. How many cases do you think you've worked on in the past 20 years? 
352. And which cases stand out the most to you? Well, pretty much all of them stand out. I mean, I get personally involved with quite a few of the cases if they're local. One of them that we worked on, gosh, probably back in, I think it was 2010 that a lady went missing and she was flying up to Sedona with her boyfriend in a private airplane and gave the information to the group. They never arrived and they were seen on the uh, path heading into Sedona from the FAA. But then the, the plane went out of sight. Then they never landed. So obviously they took off at a low speed going to another place to make it look like they landed and went here, there and everywhere, or they crashed. So I gave it to the group and then they came back and said that the plane had crashed and actually gave coordinates as to where they thought the plane was. So we searched it. I actually flew on 12 separate missions with the father who was also a pilot and we just could never find it, even though we thought we were in the general vicinity of where the plane went down and went to the forest service, asked them if they had reported any any reports from anyone about a crash or something that sounded like thunder anywhere in this particular valley up near Sedona. And they were in the middle of moving to a new facility. And when they went into the computer, there was nothing in the computer. So we did all of these searches for a period of about 18 months, including about six with our uh, canine partners, and received information from the family that an individual that was an expert in plane crashes asked if he could review all of our documents. So the father and I met with this guy, and he was a retired law enforcement person that took a, a liking to airplane missing person cases. So he asked us if we had contacted BLM and Forest Service, which we stated we did. He said, I'm going to go back and talk to him again, see if there was any update. Well, sure as hell, two days after they had moved into the new facility, they had a report sitting on someone's desk where a husband and wife that were hiking in the in the valley. I forget the name of the valley, but anyway, they said they thought they heard thunder and thought maybe it was a crash of some kind and actually walked for two hours in the direction of where they thought that they heard it. And they never saw anything. There was no smoke, no fire, no nothing. Well, this police officer decided he wanted to go into that area. So he called the Coconino County Sheriff's Department. And they went and started looking in the area. They had a helicopter looking in. And it was a specific mountain as to where we had provided the GPS coordinates. Well, they ended up climbing up the mountain, the search and rescue police officers, and the plane was wedged in the middle of a crevasse and had been sitting there all of that time. So we were accurate 100% as to where it was, but we could never see it. Wow. When did you find the plane? How many years ago was that? I think that was in 2012. The name of the, the lady, the family that contacted us, her name was Linda Randolph. So it was just frustrating because we were literally within probably 50 yards to 100 yards of where the plane crashed, but we couldn't see it because of all the woods and the trees and everything camouflaged it. The big shocker was that, you know, the plane did have fairly full gas tanks and it should have created a lot more, you know, fire and, and smoke, but 
in the period of time it took these two hikers to get to where they thought the crash was, they just didn't see any smoke or anything that indicated the the plane was anywhere where they were standing when in fact when this police officer contacted them, they actually took them back to where they thought it was, and that was the mountain we had described. That's an incredible story. I'm curious, like in your opinion, what do you think are the biggest challenges when, say, a person goes missing, whether it's a child or a family member, or in this case, it's possibly some type of accident? What do you think are the biggest challenges or perhaps law enforcement mistakes they might make in actually finding the individual, which can make it more difficult to to find the missing person? Well, if there's not a note left or some kind of evidence, you know, that they find at the house or the last location that the person went missing, then they literally don't know whether the person went north, south, east, or west. Now, if we get called in immediately, a missing child or someone that walked away from a residence, I guess a good example would be a small child or a dementia or someone that has Alzheimer's walks away. We can get our dogs to pick up on the scent and literally the dog will take us exactly to where the child or the, the Alzheimer dementia patient is. But if someone is leaving in a car or it's a runaway and the scary part about the runaways is the police will not look for anyone and are not required to look for anyone over the age of 13. And when a child is over the age of 13, the police and the National Center for Missing Children label it as an endangered missing person. The National Center will a lot of times actually label it as an endangered runaway. And even though they don't know that to be truthful, that is basically a statistic that has been developed over years of, you know, children that are over the age of 13, 14, 15, and 16 are, you know, for the most part, a high percentage is a runaway. Now, if it's an adult, then there's all kinds of potential extenuating circumstances. So if the person leaves a note, they're going to commit suicide or they have a medical condition, then the police will look for that person. But if there's nothing that you know, they're going to harm someone or harm themselves, then the police are not required to look for that person. And all of the, not all, but most of the people in the world don't realize that that's the question, that the police are not required to look for your loved one. And so that's usually how we get involved is they start looking for alternative, you know, support from some organizations. And that's how we get in, in contact with them. And what I tell families, and of course the police hate it when I do this, is just lie to the police and tell them that's a medical condition. Because even if you lie to the police on a missing person that really is a runaway or whatever, at least they're going to devote two or three, maybe four days looking for the person. But if you don't, then all they're going to do is issue an NCIC alert and a BOLO and be on the lookout. And that's all they do and take a report. And then just hope that someone accidentally or on purpose finds the individual. I'm surprised that that hasn't changed with the uptick in human trafficking, especially with children. I remember seeing a case on TV where a father had taken his, I believe, 15-year-old daughter to a basketball game, an NBA game, and she went to the bathroom and never came back. It turns out someone grabbed her. 
and she was trafficked to another state, but they the family went ahead and went with an organization that helps with missing children that have been trafficked and they were able to locate her through you know the websites that they advertise for sex trafficking these right. young girls and they were able to get the girl back but they were saying that the police didn't help them at all and i believe if i'm correct it was in the state of texas i would think that police would be concerned because that's such a fragile age especially if they're like 13 14 15 that's the travesty of the whole concept is that the police they really don't have a lot of resources but then if if the child has a medical condition then they do take a little bit more time to look into the matter but when you think about how many people go missing every day which is approximately 6000 people every single day just in the United States then you can see where this is definitely a problem for the police department i asked the sergeant in charge of the missing persons unit in phoenix police department he said how many cases do you get a month and it was unbelievable he said about 850. so think about uh-huh. that that's one police department in the state of arizona and there's 526 police departments here so when you hear that kind of thing, then, and and he had a total of 10 police officers working in the missing persons unit. They work on things that they think they can solve and that fit within the policy and procedure that the police department provides to them. And so how do you think that maybe laws could get changed or policy could get changed, especially when it comes to endangered children? Most children at 13, I would think, aren't necessarily running away. Perhaps they've been abducted from a a family member. Perhaps they could be at a friend's house. But most likely, if they're missing, do you have statistics on if they're missing at that young of an age, like it might be more circumstances where they're actually in serious danger or could possibly be dead? It sort of depends where the person went missing from. If it's from a home, that is the the one problem that it would be hard to change the the way the policies and procedures are put together with all almost there every single police department. If there is a medical condition, then that does change the status on how the police operate. But uh, if they say they're going to go and kill someone or commit suicide or do something that is potentially against the law, then the police are obligated. They then have to look for that individual. But if they have no evidence of that, one thing that they could do, and I tell this to every family and every police department, you know, from day one, is if they have access to a computer or a cell phone, then immediately try to get those records. And usually that will provide some kind some kind of evidence or clue or lead to take you in a direction to at least follow up with their friends. And we had a case in Glendale, Arizona recently where the young girl that was a little bit autistic and she was talking to a boy she thought was 16 when in fact he was 23. And all of that was in the computer. So the police got a hold of that. But then the girl went missing and to the best of my knowledge, has never been found since that day. Oh, that's horrible. 
That yeah, is so upsetting. Even though they confronted the 23-year-old, she's not in the house where he lived. And, you know, he could have taken her and given her to, you know, a human trafficking organization or, I mean, who knows how many times he's done that or, you know, killed the little girl. I mean, who knows what happened? Did you actually work that case? Uh, yeah, we did for the family and provided the information to the Glendale Police Department. But we hardly ever get any feedback from them. It's not unusual because almost everything that the police do is confidential, sensitive, or protected for various reasons. So we don't know exactly, you know, what they did and, and how they reacted to our information. But like I say, we provide the information and because we're sitting on so many investigations, we just move on to the next case unless they ask for our experts in our forensic department or if they want our airplanes or if they want our dogs, then then, of course, you know, we provide everything that we have and everything that we do is free of charge. So it's not like it's a burden on the family or the police department to use our our support. So your organization is nonprofit. How is Find Me Group funded? Or is it by donations? Do you do fundraisers? We did in the past, but they're not that successful. So uh, I joined an organization called the combined federal campaign, which is the federal government's version of United Way. And we get a fairly decent amount of money through that charitable organization. And then we do get donations literally just from random people all the time, but we will not take any money from the family or any of the family's friends on cases that we're working. And that was established from day one when I created the organization because I, the people are in enough trauma. They don't need to worry about money to provide money to an organization to look for their missing loved one. I just thought that that didn't make any sense at all. So that was one of the rules that I created from, from day one that we would never take money from family or friends. What is the oldest case you've ever worked on? It was a woman that went missing. I can't remember the name. Once I look at the spreadsheet, I always figure out who it is. But it was a case out of Philadelphia, is is the best I can recall. And it was about 27 years old. And husband went to work, came home, and she wasn't there. And no one, you know, all of the family, the children, no one has a clue where she went. Uh, There was no indication of her having a mental condition or health condition. So, you know, did she go and meet her boyfriend and and start a new life? Did she have some kind of a medical condition that no one was aware of and walked off? Or did she commit suicide and no one was able to find her? I mean, no one knows. And, you know, we provided what the psychics, you know, thought happened with, with the lady and that was provided to the police. And, like I say, if they'll accept the information, then we'll work the case. Have you found like any patterns in missing person cases or have any of the intuitives that you've worked with? I don't know if you're familiar with, there is a particular author who follows missing person cases in forests, like in parks and things like that. And I was watching a documentary about it and they were seeing some type of pattern. It was usually younger men under the age of 30 they all had kind of similar backgrounds. 
most of them were Caucasian and like there were certain patterns and how they looked and their lifestyle and things like that. And I'm just curious if you've found any patterns in any of the missing person cases. There are similarities in, you know, in almost every case that you work, because when you work as many as 352 cases, you're going to find similarities. And from my law enforcement background, I'll get a, you know, an indication or gut feeling as to what I think happened. But then there's no way of really knowing. And so none of these patterns are passed on to the, the group. They just provide the information based on their, their skill level. But, you know, when you send in a like a case report, every single case I work, there's probably 40 to 60 responses. And the reason not everyone responds is because, you know, everyone has families and jobs and, and they're not required to work every case. Our basic philosophy is work as many cases as you can, when you can. But then, you know, there's soccer moms and there's dads that have jobs that are 40, 60 hours a week. So you can't expect everyone to work each and every case, but it does average out to about half of the group each and every time. Sometimes I'll have a case that I send to them and I'll get 80 or 90 responses, which then just, you know, overloads me. But then it it could be for any number of reasons. Everyone is free and they they want to work it or it's a case that, you know, gets to them personally that they, especially missing children, it seems like the percentage of people working on the cases goes higher when it's a missing child for the obvious reasons, you know, they're not adults that can protect themselves or have enough knowledge of how the world works. So I think the members just want to work the cases where it's a child a little bit more than a missing adult. So as far as like missing persons are concerned, are you finding now because of the internet and social media, are you finding more cases where, as you mentioned, the young autistic girl was talking to someone online and then she she disappeared. Are you finding more cases like that? Yeah, it's, you know, the social media is a horrible thing when it comes to almost every person that is not knowledgeable about keeping your personal information secret. I don't go on Facebook. I never have and never will. But I'm aware of children and adults that will say on Facebook, Everyone knows who they are and who all of their friends are because it's all right there in plain sight. And then they know about their family and they know about things that they do on a regular basis. And then they'll say, I'm going to the mall uh, this afternoon around three o'clock to meet Judy and we're going to have dinner and I'll probably be home around eight o'clock. Will you just let 100,000 people know where you're going to be, that you're not going to be at your house? And do you have young children that will be home alone and everyone knows where you live because you've put that in all of your Facebook, you know, notations and, and that just drives me crazy. So about a year ago, I was being interviewed by a local TV channel and a young child went missing and they asked me in my interview, what do you do in cases like this? And I said, well, First and foremost, a child under the age of 18 
does not have the right of privacy in the home. Everything they do, you should look at their computer, look at their phone. They should not have any privacy at all. That's the only way you can protect them. And the criminals out there that are trying to exploit this, you know, they have no scruples. They're going to do whatever they can to get the child alone. And so it didn't really go over that well with, you know, a lot of parents, but it's the truth. You know, the child is innocently saying things and doing things that may alert a criminal, a pedophile or whatever, that, you know, I know exactly where she's going to be and she's meeting so-and-so at the mall and they know where they're going to meet and what time they're going to meet. So you've literally opened the door for a criminal of, of any sort, whether it's a pedophile or otherwise, or a human trafficker, you know, and you've just opened that door. And that's why, you know, I went over and, ab- and above and just said the child has zero privacy while they're in the home. And that didn't go over very well, but it's the truth. No, that I, I understand what you're saying, that we're just giving out way too much information, whether even if you're an adult, because it can happen to you as an adult as well. Like you're letting people with sinister motives kind of know what's going on in your life or how wealthy you are. or Exactly. And, and of course, you know, a lot of parents will say, well, I want to have, you know, trust and a a relationship with my child and let them know that I do trust them. Well, there's ways to work around that. Trust is not just provided to you. You have to earn it. So you develop that over the years. But then during that time period, you're also telling them what they can and what they can't do. And it's not because you have rules and you want to enforce them. It's because you're trying to protect them. And that's the hardest part, you know, for parents to do. And in, I guess, nowadays with all the social media is that they just feel like, you know, we've told them what to do and what not to do. And then, you know, we don't look at anything that they do and and whatever they want to do is fine with us because we trust them. Well, that's a huge mistake. Well, the world is definitely changing. I live in Los Angeles and a lot of, you know, celebrities will post on Instagram you know, show off their lavish homes and, for example, certain rap stars will say, hey, I'm at this restaurant and here's my brand new Lamborghini. And then we've had a slew of home invasion robberies. Like while they're out, someone's casing their place and going like, oh, I see that this person is on a business trip or they're out with friends. I'm going to go rob their house and and do home invasion robberies, which has happened extensively. And even a few individuals artists, music artists have been killed in the process, like they show up as it's happening. That is a very serious problem in the Los Angeles area, the home invasion robberies or the follow home robberies. You guys aren't unique in that regard. I mean, it's all over the country that's happening. And it's it's just normal people that, you know, it's not movie stars or entertainers. It's It's everyone. And the shocker to me was the most recent one with Paul Pelosi. Now, oh, why he didn't yeah. why he didn't have an active security system boggles the mind. You know, he was woken up in his bed. It wasn't an alarm that woke him up. The guy was actually in the bedroom. So, to me, something's wrong. Either 
they have it and he forgot to set it or they don't have security, but I'd be willing to bet you that they're going to change that aspect. It's my understanding that they have Capitol Police that are supposed to be monitoring their house. So there is a security system, but on that particular evening, Capitol Police, even though they're in D.C., they have like some security monitor system, weren't monitoring it because it was the middle of the night. But I agree with you. I found it strange because I'm familiar with the area in San Francisco because I used to live there. And these are beautiful mansions on the hill. And so this person just took a hammer and like busted the back window or the patio door kind of French door windows and, and got in. But I'm like, I'm just so shocked, like you said, like how that person was able to get in and and everything that happened. It was it was bizarre. But some people, like you said, some people may forget to turn on their security system or it's not as secure as you think it is. Or maybe he feels like, oh, well, you know, my wife is in government, so their security detail is taking care of it. And maybe he thought everything was well, yeah, and, and obviously it wasn't. He's there alone. You would think there would be something, you know, some kind of a system being monitored. And, you know, so if they did have a security system, then he either didn't set it or it didn't work. There was just something that was drastically wrong there. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that my house is a fortress, but I have a security system. And, you know, my doors are, you know, made of steel. And, you know, when you put close to 4,000 people in prison, one of them still has to be pissed at me. So, you know, you would think you would go out of your way to not just make yourself secure, but your family and protect your property. So I don't know. It just that one really boggled my mind that that occurred. And especially since she's been receiving threats for the last two years. Yeah, and he's older. You know, he's in his 80s, so he's definitely more fragile, per se. Exactly. So, anyway, uh, got off a little bit on a tangent there. But, uh, <laughs> I want to ask one more question. Uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but can you share with us your, your former former background, if I'm understanding correctly? Were you a DEA agent? Is that correct? Correct. I uh, was in my master's program when I got hired by the Secret Service. It was about two months before I was supposed to go to the academy. They had a hiring freeze. So they, back in the day, sent me a telegram saying my choice was to go with a different treasury agency at the time or wait for the next academy. So I spoke to the Secret Service individual that got me interested in taking the job. And he said, don't wait for another academy. Just go with another treasury agency which uh, at the time was the U.S. Marshals Service, IRS, ATF, and U.S. Customs. So I went with Customs, and actually eight weeks into the academy, uh, the Secret Service approached me and said, okay, you know, we'll take you back into the Secret Service. And I said, well, let me finish the academy under the Customs flag because they were kind enough to hire me and let me go to the academy. They stuck me in narcotics and uh, I fell in love with working that kind of investigation. Four years later, I transferred to the Drug Enforcement Administration and then finished out my career as a DEA agent. And did you work in Arizona or did you work in another state? As a, I worked in um, 
in uh, five different states. And back in the day when when you were undercover, DEA would periodically transfer you if you were in an undercover capacity for an extended period of time. So I got transferred at least once, if not twice, based on that. And then the rest of my transfers were looking for promotions or just a different change. And, you know, I worked in some really great, you know, states, but sometimes you just get into a pattern and you want to change. I had a total of seven transfers. When you go undercover, is it that you're trying to infiltrate a a particular organization? Well, 95% of all undercover work is you've arrested someone that you have convinced that they need to cooperate and take you to their source of supply in, in the drug world. And in the federal government system, we were always trying to go to the main source, you know, if that's Colombia or Brazil or Peru or any country that is a source country. And ultimately, that is your goal, that you're arresting and taking down all of the people that are above the person that you arrested. And then ultimately, trying to flip each and every one of those people that you arrest and ultimately get to the source in the foreign country. And then as you're doing that, you're developing a conspiracy case, getting literally every source and every dealer and every distributor, every person that is using the drugs. Usually what happens is if the investigation is big enough, then ultimately you will do what they call a Title III, which is a wiretap. And that is normally directed at the higher places of the drug dealers, and ultimately that will eventually get you to the source in the foreign country as to where they're getting the drugs. That's fascinating. And you retired, and then that's when you started the Find Me group? Correct. When I retired, I I worked as an employee for the Treasury Department for about six years, just working on cases as a, a contract employee, all investigative work, and then ultimately joined an organization where we would provide transportation of evidence from point A to point B. I did that for about seven years. And then when I transferred to Arizona, I met with a a guy I used to work with in the Chicago Field Division, and he was with the National Center for Missing Children and got me interested in joining that organization. And that's pretty much what I told you at the first of the conversation as to why I am created the Find Me group, just because they were not sending me out on cases and I just got frustrated. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation and you're doing amazing work with the Find Me group. How can someone contact you if they would like more information or perhaps have a case they'd like you to work on? Yeah, just through the website, there's a a part on the website. I never go on the website. So it's if a member wants, someone wants to join the group as a member of the group, then there's a space for that. I think it just says becoming a member. And then there's a place that if you want assistance, then you click on that and then fill out the form. And and then I personally contact anyone that that wants us to work on a case. I'll contact them either initially by an email, and then ultimately on the phone. Okay. Well, that's great. We'll go ahead and 
provide in the show notes information about how to contact you or if they have a case that they'd like to talk to you about. Thank you so much for doing the interview. I hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Death by Misadventure. If you want to make sure you never miss another episode, be sure to follow us on your favorite streaming platform. We'd also love to hear your ideas for future guests or stories. Visit us at deathbymisadventure.net to get in touch. I'm GC Nova. Thanks for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.